Support for this IPR podcast comes from Iowa Community Foundations, an initiative of the Iowa Council of Foundations, connecting donors to causes they care about. Details on the Endow Iowa Tax Credit Program at communityfoundations.org. It's a Politics Wednesday edition of River to River from Iowa Public Radio News. I'm Ben Kiefer. Joining us today, Donna Hoffman, professor of political science at the University of Northern Iowa in Cedar Falls. Hello, Donna. Good afternoon, Ben. Good afternoon. Jonathan Hasid is with us as well, Associate Professor of Political Science at Iowa State University in Ames. Jonathan, welcome to you. Hi, Ben. And we want to welcome our listeners as well, of course. Uh, If you'd like to join us on any of the topics we have today, we hope you have uh, our telephone noted, 1-866-780-9100. And a little bit later in the hour, we want to get uh, Jonathan and Donna's views on tomorrow's, uh, the uh, I think the 8th, is it the 8th, uh, January 6th hearing, the public hearing, perhaps the last one. Uh, that will um, probably preempt anything you hear over the noon hour tomorrow on uh, IPR, uh, IPR News anyway. Also, six Republican-led states, including Iowa, suing the Biden administration over student debt relief policy. We hope to talk about that a little later in the hour. Uh, The majority of the hour uh, will be addressing uh, Election Day, of course, four weeks until Election Day. Today, in four weeks, uh, we'll be going through all the results and uh, find out um, if uh, Democrats hold on to uh, one or both uh, of the chambers uh, in Congress and uh, how our election uh, congressional candidates here in Iowa fared. Uh, but first, I'd like to start off uh, with a foreign policy at the top of our news, uh, Ukraine, and uh, draw on uh, especially Jonathan's foreign policy expertise here and then see how it's um, um, from the domestic view is uh, from, from Donna, the latest uh, developments on the war in Ukraine. This from the New York Times. Uh, uh, Ukraine saying today that Germany had delivered the first of four ultra-modern air defense systems um, as Russia's attacks spurred a renewed effort from Ukraine's international allies, uh, now speeding up uh, military aid. We have defense officials from dozens of countries gathering today in Brussels to discuss supplying Ukraine with more weapons. This comes, of course, two days after Russia unleashed its uh, broadest barrage of missiles and drone strikes, uh, striking Ukrainian cities, targeting uh, civilians there, killing more than 20 people. Uh, Jonathan, let's start with you. What do you see in this latest escalation, um, missile strikes on civilian targets especially? Well, it's a mark of Putin's desperation. You know, these missiles would undoubtedly be more effectively used on the battlefield if you're aiming for battlefield gains. But, of course, Putin is now hitting hospitals and universities and civilian population centers in an effort to terrorize uh, the Ukrainian people into surrendering. And it's, you know, mass bombings like this rarely work in terms of terrorizing a population. You know, the the, the U.S. did it in World War II against uh, Nazi Germany, against Japan, and and that doesn't really seem to have... Uh, changed the resolve of people to continue fighting in those wars. Um, And so, you know, I think Putin is, uh, you know, he's trying to do his best. The British Ministry of Defense uh, has uh, issued an assessment that Putin's army is exhausted and, um, you know, just no longer capable of fighting at the same sort of relatively low level we've seen it fighting all, all this time. And so, you know, Putin is, I think, looking around for some kind of exit from the battlefield. And it 
unfortunately, he decided he was going to try to achieve that by killing civilians. Right. And one example to be added to your list there would be the bombing blitz of uh, the Second World War uh, by the Nazis on um, London and other um, English uh, cities uh, there, only hardening uh, their resolve uh, against Nazi Germany at the start of World War II. Donna, uh, what do you see in the in the Biden administration's reaction, uh, really leading the coalition of um, countries, uh, many of those in, in Europe, with this escalation? Right. Well, one of the things that um, you know the Biden administration has done has been very uh, very active in um, talking to um, the president of Ukraine. And and we know about those, you know, from reporting, releasing of those calls. But, you know, one of the things that's important, uh, the United States is, you know, keeping this coalition together. And one of the things to talk about here is Putin's miscalculations. You know, initially when this war began back in February, um, you know, Putin was uh, articulating that, you know, it was because of NATO expansion, maybe. The, and, and there were some other reasons, but that was one of the things um, that he took, uh, took uh, you know, objection to. Um, in the process of his, you know, uh, war, the uh, NATO alliance has grown stronger. It was, you know, had some cracks in it before the war. Um, also, it's expanded with Finland and Sweden. Mm-hmm. Um, the other day, Putin gave a, a speech that was a frontal attack on the West, in particular. Um, that seems and, and uh, talked about the use of nuclear weapons. That has also served to unite the West. And as you were talking about with Jonathan, the notion of you know, bombing civilian populations tends to backfire. It tends to unite that domestic population. And so Biden is, um, you know, coordinating uh, within the United States case, uh, the uh, weapons deliveries, but NATO, other NATO countries are participating in that um, as well. And those efforts seem to be, uh, any cracks that have appeared have largely gone away in at a time in which Putin is overplaying his hand. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jonathan, you are a China specialist. Of course, China, a big factor in this. In fact, the president, our president, declaring uh, today that the overwhelming challenge for the U.S. in the coming years would be, quote, outcompeting China and restraining Russia. Now, uh, let's talk about China in the context of the Ukraine war. How much international pressure is Putin under now? What can what can be told uh, said from, from from how he is behaving, the international pressure, especially from China and India, uh, who have not um, come down hard on um, against Putin up to this point. Any China, signs that is changing? Some moderate signs that it's changing. You know, I mean, of course, Putin and Xi Jinping met uh, in Beijing on February 4th, right before the invasion. And China famously said that there would be no limits to the partnership with Russia. Not hearing that kind of rhetoric anymore coming out of China. And in fact, uh, with the most recent talks between uh, Putin and uh, the Indian leadership and the Chinese leadership, uh, both sides were notably cautious on not saying a lot of words of support for Russia. There also doesn't seem to be a lot of, you know, the Chinese don't see, Chinese don't seem to be shipping arms uh, to to Russia. The Russians have had to turn to North Korea to get ammunition, uh, which is never a good sign if you have to rely on the North Koreans. Um, and uh, you know, I think, I mean. Xi Jinping, the Chinese leader, very foolishly uh, painted himself in the corner with supporting Russia, and now the Chinese are sort of uh, trying to wiggle out of it by appearing to be a more um, 
uh, responsible international stakeholder. There's another wrinkle here, too, which is that in 2013, China and Ukraine signed a treaty, which everyone has forgotten about since then, that said if nuclear weapons are used on Ukrainian territory, that the Chinese will respond militarily to that. Hmm. Um, obviously, at the time, it certainly wasn't intended to be against Russia, but it, it makes it difficult for the Chinese, uh, you know, if, if Putin unfortunately does uncork uh, battlefield nuclear weapons, uh, the Chinese are going to be are bound by treaty to respond. Bond. I don't think they will, um, but it, it certainly is one way that the Chinese uh, undoubtedly don't want Putin to do this. It's going to be hugely embarrassing if this treaty is, just turns out to be meaningless. The latest escalation, I've heard commentary you know, calling it a turning point, and the, the difficulty with turning points, the danger of turning points, rather, is you can't see what's around the corner. Uh, to, to wrap this up, Donna, any thoughts on on um, whether this is a turning point or, or other uh, things you're noticing uh, about uh, uh, the escalation of this war? Well, I think that, you know, one thing to note is that, um, you know, we are many months into this, and a lot of people thought uh, that we would, that, that this would be a relatively quick um, uh, battle, that Russia, you know, would, would be dominant in that. And obviously, we haven't seen that to be the case. And so it certainly is an unpredictable area. But you know, again, Putin seems to continually be miscalculating um, and doing actions that are backfiring and not accomplishing the things that he wants uh, to accomplish. So it um, it certainly con- continues to be uh, an area that, that bears a lot of scrutiny. Okay, if you've just joined us, it's a pul- you know, yeah, go ahead, Jonathan, sorry. Oh, I was just going to say there are also very interesting developments in, in Russia's own backyard. Um, you know, it seems like the, the sort of Russian neighbors, uh, neighbors of Russian alliance are, 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 seems to be crumbling in the, in the collapse of Russian power, uh, which is really interesting and uh, something mm-hmm. to watch going forward. I wonder, Jonathan, to follow up on that thought, any indications that Putin's grip on power within Russia may be at risk? Uh, support among the Russian public, of course, uh, huge implications for the, the um, you know, calling up and the mobilization. And we had at least a couple hundred thousand uh, men in Russia fleeing that country to avoid that conscription. Um, what about the support among Russian public now, among the, the, the military, among the Russian elite for Putin? It's difficult to tell, of course. We don't really have accurate information coming out. But one thing that is clear is that the level of discontent that's expressed in the in the uh, state-controlled Russian press does seem to be rising, and there seems to be more people willing to directly blame people like Defense Minister Sergei Shoigu. No one is blaming Putin yet, but Shoigu is his hand-picked man, and uh, there wasn't criticism of him before. So that suggests perhaps that there's some movement among elites. But, you know, Russian politics at the top is a black box. So yeah. we'll, we'll, I guess we'll see what happens. <laughs> right. Jonathan Hasid with us of Iowa State University. Donna Hoffman of the University of Northern Iowa, our two political scientists uh, uh, taking apart um, the politics at home and abroad. Join our conversation, one 780 9100 1-866-780-9100. Uh, let us move to our domestic politics. Four weeks from today, we'll be taking stock of the results of the 2022 midterm results, uh, control of the U.S. Senate and House hanging in the balance. Uh, Let's get the thoughts of Donna and Jonathan on this. Let's go specifically to the 3rd District um, and and listen to some audio from the two major party uh, candidates, uh, incumbent. Um, uh, Well, let's, of course, in the the 3rd District race, we have um, incumbent uh, Representative Cindy Axney. She's Iowa's lone Democrat um, fighting uh, in Washington, fighting to keep her seat in the U.S. House. Um, 
U.S. this November, she faces uh, Iowa Senator Zach Nunn, a Republican, uh, Iowa's third district, including 21 counties in the southwest corner of the state, but also including Polk and Dallas uh, counties. The uh, Let's listen to a couple of excerpts from a debate they recently had. Um, they sparred over economic policy and abortion during a debate last week. Here is Zach Nunn with his stance on abortion. I am pro-life. I support the mother and the baby. And we've voted repeatedly here in Iowa to provide exceptions for the health of the mother, something my opponents lied about repeatedly. We uh, uh, provide exceptions for rape, incest, and fetal abnormalities. But additionally, we take care of the mother throughout the process, and with the Moms Act that we passed, we take care of them after to be able to have an advantage for people who want to adopt. Additionally, we've supported over-the-counter contraception to take care of women's health when they need it most. Now, my opponent, unfortunately, also has a voting record that's very extreme, that would allow abortion up until the day of a birth. Additionally, it would provide taxpayer-funded uh, abortions, even if the child was viable. This is more extreme than places we see in anywhere else in the world other than China and North Korea, and it's wrong. Most Iowans don't agree with that. Okay. Axne did say there that she does not support abortion up until birth. Here is uh, some of her response to Zach Nunn. There's no one that should be making a decision for women's reproductive health than the woman. She should have the involvement of her doctor and her family as her choice, but the choice certainly belongs with her. My opponent, on the other hand, can slice and dice this however he wants. We saw him on stage in a primary debate questioned if he supported abortion when it came to cases of rape. He said no. He raised his hand no. He raised his hand no uh, when they asked him if he would support cases of incest. He said no. And he said no to the mother's life. This was just a few months ago, folks, when he said he did not support abortion in any of those cases. And let me remind folks that if we forget about his 2017 support for the abortion bill, where there were no exceptions for rape or incest, or his 2020 abortion bill, the six-week fetal heartbeat bill. This man's positions on abortion are extreme. They're out of touch with Iowans, and they're out of touch with what women and people across this country, especially here in Iowa, want to see. Third District Congressional uh, Incumbent Representative Cindy Axley, Democrat, and her opponent, uh, former Iowa State Representative Zach Nunn, sparring over economic policy, a Republican there. Let's uh, uh, comment especially on this issue, Donna, and and how you see this uh, race. So uh, this race is um, not unusual in some ways on the, I mean, we were listening to their rhetoric there, um, in that we have seen... um, and we do see this on other issues historically, that, that sometimes uh, candidates will, to win their party's primary, move to the right or to the left, depending on their party, and then for the general election have to move to the center. You know, this is an example with the reproductive rights issue of something Republicans have talked about for numerous election cycles. Um, it's a little bit like the dog that caught the car, however, because um, in the scope of a general election, many of these candidates um, are um, altering their rhetoric, they are altering the statements that they have on their web pages because the general electorate is a different electorate than the primary electorate. And we also have pieces of evidence um, 
from this summer until now in which uh, we're unclear as to how much of an issue this is going to be for the general electorate. We saw the vote in Kansas on uh, changes to their constitution that were um, voted down. And we saw in that, and of course, Kansas, a very conservative state, and we saw in that a disproportionate number of women registering to vote after the Dobbs decision was handed down. Mm -hmm. We are looking at um, polling questions, uh, asking voters, what's your most important issue? Um, and abortion for some is going to be something they care about very intensely. For example, usually economic issues are, are uh, atop of this. And, and today we're also seeing some threats to democracy be part of that. Um, but this is an intense issue. And while it's not going to be intense for everyone, it could be intense for enough voters who also might have been voters that would have set out a midterm election, that politicians have to watch how they calibrate their language here. And we are seeing a lot of um, kind of changes to the rhetoric that some of these politicians are doing that um, that open them up to charges of hypocrisy, that open them up to, um, you know, as uh, Representative Axney was doing, looking at their records and using that in the course of a debate. Mm -hmm. A slight correction. Um, I, I identified Zach Nunn as a state representative. He's a uh, state senator, uh, Republican Zach Nunn. Uh, Jonathan, to you here, picking up on what Donna had to say there, uh, the degree to which presidential politics, national politics are shaping all uh, congressional races, of course, uh, Biden's low approval rating, uh, the former president, Donald Trump's continued presence, very <laughs> heavy presence in our politics uh, going around the country uh, for rallies. I noticed recently that uh, the uh, Wyoming Republican congressional candidate Harriet Hageman rallied for the third district congressional candidate, uh, Zach Nunn, and uh, Hageman won that contentious Republican primary against incumbent uh, U.S. Representative Liz uh, Cheney, uh, an outspoken critic of the former president uh, for his connection to the January 6th Capitol insurrection. She said she would investigate the FBI and critics of Trump if elected. But aside, she's rallying for Zach Nunn there. Your comment on, on how national politics are, are, are going into our congressional races, specifically this race, uh, Jonathan. Yeah, it's uh, certainly... Races, you know, ticket splitting is rarer than it used to be, much rarer. People used to would perhaps vote for one candidate in one party for the presidential ticket and then vote down ballot for uh, other local representatives from an op from the other party. People do that a lot less. It's just uh, it's a sort of a sad decline as more and more political races have gotten nationalized. Even races like school board elections now are highly politicized and uh, related to what's happening at the national level. You know, the important thing to remember is that this is a midterm election. Presidents <clears throat> almost always lose uh, seats um, in midterm elections. And, of course, um, this one is going to be really consequential in large part because uh, the, the Democratic majorities are so tiny. Uh, and the Senate the Senate is tried. Of course, the House only has a, a very small uh, Democratic majority. And so, you know, the odds of one or both of the chambers flipping is very, very high, which means that, you know, local races like the 3rd Congressional District race uh, have potentially outsized national impact. Mm -hmm. especially in a time where everybody is interested in national politics and nobody seems particularly interested in finding out what local issues are important to them. Let's let's talk about the Senate race. Uh, our, our one U.S. senator uh, up for re-election, uh, Senator uh, U.S. Senator Chuck Grassley, uh, seven-time incumbent. Uh, his challenger, Mike Franken, he was on this program with me yesterday. Um, 
uh, Grassley seeking his eighth term in the U.S. Senate. Uh, Franken, a Democrat and retired U.S. Admiral. Let's listen to a couple excerpts from their recent debate um, uh, uh, on uh, Iowa Public Television. Um, Franken was asked by the Gazette's um, Des Moines uh, Bureau Chief Aaron Murphy about comments featured in a recent ad. Let's listen. Uh, Mike Franken, right now Iowans are seeing you in a campaign ad in which you say senators, quote, have no role whatsoever in bringing down inflation. Uh, should we take this to mean that if elected to the Senate, you and the Senate see no role for yourself in addressing inflation? On the contrary. There's no instantaneous thing you can do as a senator that's going to suddenly reduce inflation. Now, my opponent has seen these wafting moments of inflation come and go through his career. Matter of fact, when he entered the Senate, I remember this because I bought my first house with a mortgage rate of 14.7% during the Reagan era when the Republicans owned the Senate and the White House. And it stayed there for a very high, high time, for a long time. And then it became the, the farm crises followed by the savings and loan debacle of the 80s bad management. While the 80s was going on, of course, uh, the national debt went up and the, the, the tax rate for the uber wealthy went down. This is nirvana for the Republicans. Okay, here are Grassley's comments in that debate on infl inflation. Inflation is number one on the issues that I hear from my constituents. And what would you expect? Uh, when Larry Summers, former Secretary of Treasury in the Clinton administration, an outstanding economist, said in January before this new administration took place that, uh, that uh, don't spend any more money or you're going to feed the fires of inflation. Remember, inflation was 1.4% when this president went in. And you can't blame the war in U Ukraine like it, like... Uh, Biden wants to do because it was still 6% at the start of that war. And so consequently, uh, they've, uh, within 60 days after they were sworn in with a Democrat majority, they spent another $2 trillion. Then in August of this year, another $714 trillion. Then forgive uh, uh, student debt. Uh, and, and another $567 billion. So just feeding the fires of inflation, not listening to their own, is what's made this uh, inflation. Okay, a couple of excerpts from a recent debate uh, between U.S. Senator Grassley and his Democratic challenger, uh, Mike Franken. We'll get comments uh, about that Senate race when we return after a short break. Uh, Donna Hoffman is with us, professor of political science at the University of Northern Iowa. Jonathan Hasid, associate professor of political science at Iowa State University. Also, when we come back, uh, we'll talk about some other competitive um, congressional races, uh, Iowa's uh, races, and also also, uh, the six Republican-led states, including Iowa, that are suing uh, the Biden administration over student debt relief policy. Uh, we'll 
Got comments from uh, Donna and Jonathan about that. Also, tomorrow's January 6th hearing. It's perhaps the last one. You'll be hearing that uh, as scheduled. It goes off as scheduled uh, tomorrow at this time over the noon hour. I believe it starts at, at noon Iowa time. We'll be back with more of our Politics Day. Jonathan Hasid and Donna, Donna Hoffman. In just a moment, I'm Ben Kiefer. Back in just a moment. Support for this IPR podcast comes from Iowa Community Foundations, an initiative of the Iowa Council of Foundations, connecting donors to causes they care about. Details on the Endow Iowa Tax Credit Program at communityfoundations.org. Support for IPR comes from The Healing Room at Upstream Functional Medicine, offering medical spa services that support the body's natural ability to detoxify from environmental challenges. Learn more about The Healing Room at upstreamfm.com. And we're back with this Politics Wednesday edition of River to River from Iowa Public Radio News. I'm Ben Giffer. Today uh, with us, Donna Hoffman of the University of Northern Iowa, Jonathan Hasid of Iowa State University. When we left before the break, uh, we wanted to discuss the uh, Senate race. Uh, Senator Chuck Grassley seeking his eighth term against uh, uh, challenger, Democratic challenger Mike Franken, a retired uh, uh, Navy Admiral. They've both been on this program in the last couple of weeks. If you'd like to hear my conversations with them, which both included uh, email questions from our listeners, just check out our River to River podcast. Subscribe to the River to River podcast um, so you don't miss any. They'll, they drop every day following uh, that day's uh, the, the day following uh, the broadcast. But let's let's talk a little bit about this. We heard their comments both on inflation. Of course, the Republicans, Donna, wanting to have inflation be at top of uh, voters' minds along with the southern border uh, I- issues. Uh, how do you see this uh, Senate race now? So certainly um, economic issues are important here, and they, they typically are always are. Um, but, you know, if we go back to the clips that you played from the debate, um, you know, if if a politician could um, control inflation, we would never have high inflation. So, the you know, and the the levers of the economy, as government tries to um, you know keep everything in an even keel, some of those are in Congress with with uh, fiscal policy, taxing and spending issues. But many of them, especially when it relates to inflation, are um, in the Federal Reserve, and that's the monetary policy aspect of it. So we've seen interest rates rise. Um, recently in an attempt to try to, you know, channel uh, inflation to try to keep it under control. But humans are humans and they react sometimes differently to the decisions that are made on those those levels. And so, um, you know, politicians can't, it, it, it's like a big ship, you can't turn it uh, on a dime. And, you know, one of the things that citizens need to understand, and they do this with gas prices too, they hold presidents responsible for gas prices, for example, where presidents have no control here. Uh, Anytime it comes to something related to the economy, citizens in the course of an election have to um, weigh their votes uh, related to their their economic position, their perception of what the national economic perception uh, is. And actually, you know, in that regard, voters don't do a very, uh, a very good job, Mm -hmm. um, meaning that they need to do a lot more diligence in terms of uh, their knowledge base because of you know the lack of power that a lot of politicians have when it comes to things that that Americans think you know politicians actually control and they don't and that was part of the the framework that one needs to use to understand those clips um, that you that you played right before the break. Mm-hmm. Well, I think uh, Tom, one of our listeners in Des Moines, has uh, this on his mind as well. Tom, welcome to the program. 
long-time listener, sometimes caller, uh, and I want to echo your uh, uh, expert's opinion there. I think that uh, you know people do expect your senator and House member to, to vote in ways that are going to, to benefit you, and especially Republicans who are uh, centered on three issues, inflation, crime, and immigration, they have to consider what is it that Republicans are going to do on these three issues that's really going to benefit them. And there's very, very little. Uh, inflation, they want uh, stop spending. Well, that's not going to solve the problem. This is what Chuck Grassley keeps coming back to. We've got to stop all this terrible spending that caused the inflation when that's not the issue. Right. I, think, think, I think, to be fair, that's a disputed point. Some economists will say, yes, it has contributed to inflation. But go on, Tom. Yes, it has contributed, but it's not the sole cause. And that's the way the Republicans talk, like it's the sole cause. And the, and the effect is that we're going to have to stop spending. Mm-hmm. And that's going, to, that's going to help correct the inflation. On crime, they, they say, okay, well, we've got to stop the defunding the police. When actually the Republicans are the ones on the national level who want to defund the police? Mm-hmm. A column by Dave, uh, excuse me, Dana Milbank in the Washington Post last year points this out. He says that Republicans are voting to defund police uh, uh, funding uh, on the national level. Tom, and Tom, there's very little to be done on the national yeah. level. Most of it's on state and local level. I, th- I think I think we have your points. Let's get reaction from Jonathan to Tom's points in Des Moines uh, here. Um, uh, Jonathan, how do you read this, especially with the Senate race? Yeah, I mean, Tom made some interesting points. I mean, uh, certainly one individual senator or even the entire Senate really don't have much impact on inflation, as, as Donna's already mentioned. I mean, you know, the EU zone tends to have higher inflation than, than the United States does, and clearly U.S. senators are not making, you know, inflation high in England or Germany. Um, and so uh, the, the point that I thought that Tom, Tom made was particularly interesting was, was the point that, uh, you know, Republicans are running on complaining about these issues but not really offering solutions. There isn't any kind of Republican national platform this year. There isn't anything like a contract with America. Uh, Rick Scott, the senator from Florida, has proposed one, but it's been really controversial even inside the Republican Party. And uh, Mitch McConnell, the Senate uh, minority leader, has really backed away from Scott's plans. And so he's, he's, that's really the only concrete proposals we've heard. The rest of it is, um, you know, this is a problem. We're going to fix it, but without saying how it's going to be fixed, which, of course, is something that politicians periodically do. And it makes sense, I suppose, in this case, where there really isn't a way for one individual Iowa senator to fix inflation. Mm-hmm. Even the president has quite limited power over inflation fighting. Mm-hmm. Uh, to look at another competitive uh, congressional race here in Iowa, let's go uh, swing up to the district that uh, you are in, uh, Donna. Uh, Northeast Iowa voters will choose between Republican Ashley Hinson, um, the incumbent and Democrat challenger Liz Mathis for Congress in this uh, newly redrawn districts. All the districts have been redrawn. She's uh, Hinson is the incumbent U.S. representative. She won that seat in 2020 by defeating the Democratic incumbent, Ambie Finkenauer. Mathis is a state senator seeking to unseat her this year. That second congressional district, 22 counties in Iowa's northeast corner, including Blackhawk County, Dubuque County, but also going down to Lynn County. Uh, Donna, how do you say this race now? 
Um, it's a highly competitive race. Uh, this area of the state tends to be that way. Um, and note this, you know, currently it's District 1, but we'll, we'll be in District 2 for that race. Um, and so Henson is a freshman, meaning that this is the first term that she serves. And, and Iowans like incumbents, Americans generally speaking like incumbents. Um, incumbents are most endangered in their first re-election, and this is Henson's, uh, Henson's uh, first re-election. And this particular district, even in its reformulated uh, shape, um, is quite competitive, and she's going up against Liz Mathis. Um, both of them have spent time uh, as, as TV hosts uh, as well, so they're familiar faces to, um, to the people of this district typically. And if you look at the registration uh, rates for this particular district, um, they're, they're roughly at parity, Democrats, Republicans, and no party. Uh, there's a slight, slight edge for Democrats. Mm -hmm. um, the key in these races uh, in Iowa, kind of generally speaking, except for the fourth district, um, tends to be, you know, these candidates addressing the no party members uh, or the no party uh, registrants um, because they're sizable. They're no longer a, a plurality in these districts, but they're sizable. And um, they tend to move in, in a, uh, you know, kind of in, uh, in a big, big chunk in these elections. And so, you know, but both of these candidates have to appeal to their partisans, of course, but they also have to appeal to no party um, registrants and um, and some new territory here. And so this is a pretty competitive race uh, of the three uh, of the four congressional districts that we have Cook political report lists all three of them uh, besides the fourth um, as um, competitive. And that's really, really unusual because of the 435 races we have in the United States, um, only a handful of them, about 45, are actually competitive. And we have three of those. And this is one. Mm -hmm. Jonathan, you have a comment about this matchup between the incumbent, Ashley Henson, and Liz Mathis? Well, Donna took my point about how lucky we are to actually have competitive elections mm. in the state. It's <laughs> becoming an, an increasing rarity out mm -hmm. there, and Iowans have the luxury of have at least three of the districts are competitive. There hasn't been a lot of polling on these races. The last one I saw was actually a poll, poll Liz, released by Liz Mathis's campaign back in July that has uh, her even with Henson. Um, you know, it's, I mean, we can see just how competitive these races are just by looking at when the people were, you know, looking at legislative turnover just in the last few election cycles. You know, a lot of these have gone from Republican to Democrat to back to Republican again. And, uh, you know, even when people like Sidney Axney win or Marinette Miller makes win, they, they really squeak it out. Yeah, so, I mean, the, 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 the definition of a squeaker is six votes out of 400,000. That was Marionette exactly, Miller-Meeks yeah. last time around, wasn't it? It was. And, that, you know, that was just she's, she's only been in office since 2021. Um, in fact, the all, of all our four congressmen, Cindy Axney has been in office the longest since only 2019. So there's been a lot of uh, considerable amount of turnover, which is, you know, uncommon in America and something Iowans should be pleased about. Okay. I wanted to move on here to t talk a little bit about what happened today, what is happening today. We get to a final couple of um news-related political developments as political developments in the news of federal judge in Missouri hearing arguments today on whether to stop the Biden administration from moving forward with plans to cancel up to $20,000 in student loan debt for more than 40 million people. Now, um, a few days ago, a coalition of six Republican-led states, including Iowa, but also Arkansas, Missouri, Nebraska, South Carolina, Kansas, are suing the Biden administration uh, over the debt relief policy. They accuse the president of overstepping his authority, threatening the review, the revenue of state entities that profit from federal student loans. Uh, the Biden administration has been adamant that it has the legal authority to cancel student uh, debt. Uh, Donna, t to you here, comment on the, the political side of this story. 
So this is something that Biden, the Biden administration has talked about for a long time. They've gone back and forth in terms of the authority here. Um, and the, the legal authority here comes from an act of Congress. And so, you know, again, earlier I was talking about, you know, presidents not being able to co control gas prices. Americans think presidents have a lot more power than they have. And in this particular case, um, this is power that Congress gave through a congressional act, the HEROES Act, uh, in the aftermath of 9-11. And um, the HEROES Act, in that act, Congress gave authority to the Secretary of Education in an emergency to be able to um, adjust uh, debt, student loan debt. And, um, and so that is the authority under which Biden is asking the Secretary of Education to act on this particular issue. The question then comes up, uh, there's several issues here. One is standing, who can sue on this issue? We've had a couple of cases here from individuals that have already been dismissed because they don't have standing to sue. Uh, this is a case from six states, as you mentioned, of which Iowa is one. They may potentially have standing, but that still remains to be, to be seen. Um, and then the issue of, did Biden over, you know, overextend his authority here? Well, it's fairly clear in the law that Congress gave this power to the Secretary of Education. One of the, the sticking points can be, um, is the Secretary of Education using the right procedures to do this? Um, and is are we still in essentially an emergency? Because it is linked to emergency power in that sense. Um, and so these are cases that, again, um, the, the Biden administration has wrestled with. Their opinion has been that, yes, the Secretary of Education has this authority. And so they've moved forward with it. Of course, like many of the things in uh, American society, society and politics, um, these get challenged in courts. And so we'll see um, how these progress and multiple cases, multiple issues here. Yeah. Uh, Jonathan, your view on this, uh, if these uh, six states, including Iowa, suing the Biden administration, if it seems fairly clear cut in the law that uh, Donna just described, I mean, why why make um, this um, uh, lawsuit against uh, Biden's student loan debt policy here? Well, I mean, the lawsuit sends a political signal, right, that, that Republican governors and, and state's attorney generals or state attorney generals are fighting back, um, even if the lawsuit never goes anywhere. Once again, Donna has uh, stolen my, my point <laughs> about the importance of standing. Um, you know, to, 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 to sue somebody, you have to show that you've been harmed. There has to be some kind of uh, cognizant, cognizable harm uh, that has been done. And that's where the lawsuits have failed so far. Um, Ordinary taxpayers can't sue uh, either for government policy, even if they don't like the policy, if it doesn't affect them personally. And so the, the hard part for states is going to get over this standing requirement. How are states harmed? So they're arguing that they're losing some uh, revenue from loan servicing and that kind of thing, which may get around this standing problem. But that's, it's a formidable problem in this lawsuit. Um, but in a certain sense, I think the lawsuit has been filed not to achieve its ostensible goal of stopping student loan relief, but in sending the political message that, uh, you know, elected Republican officials are fighting the Biden administration in court uh, whenever they can. Mm -hmm. And uh, Governor Reynolds also up for re-election here. Uh, so um, she, of course, um, uh, I guess, Jonathan, what you're saying, she would like to be seen in this in this light as well as fighting. That's right. I mean, she, you know, she looks like she's uh, joining other uh, Republican governors and attorneys general in fighting the you know, the evil overreach of the Biden administration or whatever, however she would characterize it. Uh, but in this case, it makes her look like she's doing something, even though, of course, as governor of the state of Iowa, there's very little she can do about national student loans. Okay. So this way, at least it appears that she's, you know, 
moving forward. Yep. In the final final few minutes here, let's finish up with this. Tomorrow, the U.S. House Committee investigating the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol will be holding what we think will be its last public hearing. Um, this is the investigation into former President Donald Trump and his influence as he refused to acknowledge the results of the 2020 election. It was a hearing that was supposed to be held last month, delayed until tomorrow, uh, 1 p.m. Eastern. That's 12 noon our time. We it will be heard tomorrow at this time, um, the Hurricane uh, Ian uh, delaying it. And uh, we, Jonathan, let me start with you this time. Uh, following the ninth hearing, this will be the ninth hearing, the panel will then draw up its final report with the aim for it to be published by the end of the year. What will you be watching for tomorrow? To see if the panel can distinctly link Donald Trump to the violence at the Capitol. Was he or his administration in contact with um, members of the Oath Keepers, uh, some of whom are on trial for sedition right now? Uh, was he in contact with uh, violent members of the crowd, right? Did, did Donald Trump deliberately uh, encourage armed supporters or know about the armed supporters going to storm the Capitol and did nothing? We have lots of indications that Trump knew that this was going to happen, but so far there hasn't really been a smoking gun. There hasn't been anything that the committee has produced that links him personally mm-hmm. uh, to the violence at the Capitol. And it'll be interesting to see if um, the, the committee comes up with one tomorrow. Um, you know, I think the timing of this is interesting, right? Happening at the same time that trials for literal seditious conspiracy for the Oath Keepers are happening. And so if, if the Congressional Committee can tie uh, Trump or his administration to people like the Oath Keepers, uh, that could potentially be a powerful judicial weapon. Mm-hmm. Donna, you agree? No smoking gun shown yet? Well, <clears throat> pardon me. There have been um, each of these hearings uh, that have been held over the summer have come up with um, something new, right? There's been a lot of uh, compiling of the evidence that we knew, uh, but then there's always been uh, something new here. And so, you know, the smoking gun may not necessarily need to be there in an aha type of moment because this hearing, these hearings have been designed to, you know, make a cumulative point. And, um, and that's going to come together in this report. And the real um, import here is what that report looks like in terms of this is the goal of a select committee. What kind of policy recommendations can we make so that we prevent this kind of thing from happening in the future? Now, they could potentially uh, recommend um, an indictment, but they don't indict themselves. They could make recommendations to DOJ. My guess is they probably won't. DOJ, though, we know is also investigating these various um, elements, some of which we've seen. Um, in uh, in these these hearings. So these hearings are really focused to um, bring to the public attention, this is what good congressional hearings do, bring to the public attention the, um, the production of these particular hearings has been much, much higher than something we've seen before with the video, with the testimony intertwining there. They've had, uh, you know, I think quite a large effect in that regard to the people that are watching. Of course, some people are not going to pay attention to this kind of issue, but we have also then seen movement in Congress, particularly recently, even absent this report, of making changes to the Electoral Count Act. There's a bill that's passed the House. There's a companion bill in the Senate that is a little bit different, but it and that is bipartisan. And it does look in the lame duck that um, Congress will actually be able to probably pass some uh, clarifications uh, related to that act that were um, that had some ambiguities in it that caused some of the issues related to what happened on January 6th. So these um, 
even if there is no quote unquote smoking gun here, these hearings have been enormously important in informing the public, in laying out a case, uh, prompting even Congress to move now and may prompt some other kinds of um, recommendations in terms of policy for Congress as well. Mm -hmm. Jonathan, to pick up on one of the points that Donna just mentioned, we know that a significant number of people are either not paying attention to this committee's investigation or do not believe in its work. So we have to wonder, you know, smoking gun, no smoking gun, depending on how you define it, how much will this matter? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, it, for for Donald Trump's hardcore supporters, you know, the fact that he attempted a coup last January doesn't doesn't seem to matter. And you're right that coming up with like clear evidence linking him directly to the coup attempt uh, wouldn't matter either. But uh, Donna makes a great point that you know slowly the cumulative effect of these hearings does seem to have moved the needle a little bit. Uh, Trump's support within the GOP has softened. People are more willing to sort of call out his election lies than they were. Um, obviously, there are a lot of candidates out there running for Republican uh, office holders and the candidates running for office who, who claim falsely that the 2020 election was, was uh, uh, rigged. Um, and perhaps uh, the hearings will, uh, you know, demonstrate how important it is uh, for people to trust the sanctity of elections and to not uh, support people who blatantly lie about uh, what's going on. But, yeah. You know, that. The number of people who are going to do this is are actually going to be affected is, isn't, isn't huge, but it can be enough to swing a tight race. Mm-hmm. Quickly, before we end, uh, Donna, how do you evaluate what seems to be a very real threat of violence if, for example, let's say the, the DOJ launches a criminal investigation into former President Trump's actions surrounding January 6th? Well, I mean, I think that threat is there, um, but that is not a reason to not uh, let the to follow the rule of law, for example. Um, and that is one of the things that, um, you know, Trump fans the flames of uh, in, in some of his rhetoric uh, in talking about these things over the last several months is that, oh, my supporters will be so upset and, you know, implicit or explicit uh, even threats. And that should not prevent uh, the Department of Justice from uh, following the law and um, making sure that everybody is protected under the law equally. Professor of Political Science at the University of Northern Iowa, Donna Hoffman, joined this hour by Jonathan Hasid, uh, Associate Professor of Political Science at Iowa State University. Jonathan and Donna, thank you again for another delightful hour picking apart our politics. Happy to be here, Ben. Thanks, Ben. Support for IPR comes from The Healing Room at Upstream Functional Medicine, offering medical spa services that support the body's natural ability to detoxify from environmental challenges. Learn more about The Healing Room at upstreamfm.com. River to River today produced by Danny Gear. Also helping out Samantha McIntosh, our executive producer, Catherine Perkins. I'm Ben Kiefer. Thanks for joining us.